1: Hey, it's Max. So Evan and Aaron uh, are on vacation this week, and we actually had a whole episode ready to go. It was done last week, but then Roe was overturned. And in the aftermath of that decision, I read this piece by Rebecca Traister on the cut. It was about her reaction to that moment. It's a moment that she has been saying publicly is coming for a very long time. And it was also about how it's going to get worse from here and about how she's thinking about moving forward, uh, both herself and the country. So anyway, I I read the piece and then uh, immediately wrote a note to Rebecca. She's a writer at New York Magazine. She's the author of a book called Good and Mad. It's about the uh, political power of women's anger. And she was generous enough to come talk to me yesterday for a while. It's actually the second time we've talked for the show. The first time, uh, somehow, was the day that it became clear that Brett Kavanaugh would be the next Supreme Court justice. And what I wanted to talk to her about was her intellectual response to the row News, but also her emotional response to it and how those two things combine into a piece like the one that she published on Friday. But we also ended up talking about how her writing has changed over the last year, how it changed when the Alito leak came, and also how she thinks it might change going forward. Thanks to the folks at Vox with whom we make this show. And now here's my conversation with Rebecca Traister yesterday. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Max. Uh, The last time we talked, for the show at least, it was a day in which it became clear that Brett Kavanaugh was going to be the next Supreme Court Justice. And uh, we sat down and I asked how you were feeling. Uh, And here we are again. And so I will ask, how are you feeling?
2: I mean, I'm feeling very similarly to how I did that day. I mean, that day, I count that day as one of my, I have five moments in recent years in which I very specifically understood that this was where we were ultimately part of where we were ultimately going to wind up. Right. And that day with you wasn't your fault, but uh, (laughs) that day with you counts as one of my five, you know, data points, you know, being here where we are now is something I've feared for most of my adult life. Um, But there were specific starting with election night, 2016 and the retirement of Anthony Kennedy The confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett are my sort of five points where every one of those points I was like, right, we're now heading straight into a future in which Roe will be overturned, but I don't want to make it seem like that's the only part of that future, right? Like there's a whole future that has been very clear to me. And so that day was one of those five moments where that clarity was really, um, really sharp.
1: For me, even knowing that Friday was coming, Friday felt different than I expected it to. And you have been saying publicly that Friday was coming, this decision was coming for a long time. At each one of those moments, you were writing, prepare yourself because this moment is coming. And I I wonder how it was for you on Friday when that news came.
2: There is this weird thing of being shocked and not shocked. I, and I don't mean to be, I hate the sort of stance of like, I don't know why the rest of you are surprised. I've <laughs> known this was coming for years, which is like, I mean, a very popular way to, I think it's a rhetorical technique to make yourself feel better when you do that. But, but right. It's my job to have been thinking about this and understanding that this was among the many outcomes um, that, that we were heading toward. And yet the reality of it is uh, is awful, is awful. And you're balancing in your own head, like, wait, why am I feeling this way? I knew this was happening. And yet you're feeling like all the moisture has been drained from your body and your eyes are going to pop out of your head. The night of the leak, like, I mean, I was shocked by the leak, right? I was shocked by the actual timing of the leak, the baldness of it, right? Um, I found myself intellectually totally unsurprised. And yet my body was shaking, like shaking for hours in that cold, like sort of shock way. Um, and then on Friday I was far more prepared because we We'd seen the leak. So, you know, um, we were, and I was with my colleague. I'm so grateful that to have been with my colleague just through a set of circumstances. We were working together in my home, my colleague Arin Carmon, who who covers this so closely. But we didn't necessarily think it was going to be that morning. And so the shock of it happening and being real, um, again, like the physical manifestations of that, the absorption of, okay, this is no longer the thing I'm anticipating. This is the world now as it is. And thinking immediately of the people who were in waiting rooms, and since then I've read the incredible coverage, um, including in the New Yorker, of the, what was happening in clinics. But that was what I was thinking of, because I had known so many people who were preparing for this within, you know, th- that this moment was going to come and just trying to get the people who needed care, care before it came, and then immediately thinking about the people who were in the clinics, in the waiting rooms um, in that moment. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was horrible, And it was physically felt, even though intellectually and emotionally, I probably was among about as prepared as you could be.
1: That gap between the intellectual and the emotional and the way you're describing it, it's almost like when someone you know is going to die actually dies. I mean, that's the the closest corollary I can think of. Like You know it is coming, and yet when it comes, the physical manifestations of it are impossible to prepare for.
2: Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. And I think it's a process of you're girding yourself, and yet there's actually nothing that can prepare you. You're girding yourself because you understand that an enormous loss is coming. But then when the loss is there, you've experienced the loss, and it is a different sensation. I would add that there's another element in my business And one of the elements that I try to get at, which is that to be a person who writes about this stuff in public and in pretty mainstream public places, right, um, is to have spent a lot of my career being told that I was overstating everything, right? Now, and that has a particular, that's not just me being like, oh, I was told I was hysterical and I was mad. No, I am somebody who's very susceptible to having people, peers, often peers who, I, I, I mean, I who I somehow absorb as having authority, right? Even if I can sort of say, I think they're full of shit. Like, there's, there's something about having like some of the more powerful people in the profession of political reporting, for instance, tell you like, you're being crazy, which is what I've been told, not just about Roe, but like about when I was very scared that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency, don't be silly. Donald Trump isn't going to be president, right? Like you're being ridiculous. You're, and this idea that you're borrowing drama, right? Like you're borrowing, oh, that, and it, and it's very tied to sort of feminizing and um, it's a complicated dynamic, but, but it really matters that at every stage Of my career, I have been told that my worst fears were definitely overstated. And with particular, for example, that was happening up through, I mean, there is a leaked draft of a decision. And there are not just random people on Twitter, but experts, like legal experts, political experts, you know, mainstream Beltway reporters being like, oh, but Roberts is going to take the more moderate path, which, first of all, it was a lie and a distortion. It wasn't more moderate. Secondly, was like being told, like, it's just a draft. That's not the final. Um, all this denialism. And the denialism is meant to make everybody calm down, I guess.
1: Do you feel like that denialism has continued even since Friday? Yes. With this with this kind of rhetoric of like at least like wealthy white women in New York will continue to have abortion.
2: Listen, the denialism exists on so many levels. The you know, people have also among the things that people who've been saying like Roe is going to be overturned. Right. Or Roe is even to say Roe is at risk over the past decades, even as Roe itself was being hollowed out. You were told if you said that publicly that like Roe is safe. Um, you know, there was a there was just complete denialism. Then to say, look, this is a court that is all that is coming not just for abortion, but for contraception, for for same sex marriage, for, you know, for marriage equality. And still after the leak, one of the big messages, don't be overdramatic. They're not coming for those other things, even after. And I heard that. The day of the decision on Friday when Clarence Thomas wrote a concurrence saying, "Yeah, no, we're coming after uh, gay marriage and contraception and and in which the dissent, as again, my my colleague Errin pointed out in her piece, like the dissent makes that clear too, saying, look, all of these these things have been laid bare.
1: So what is that like for you professionally to have been having this experience for years and years and years where you're being told you're overreacting? And then the thing that you have been saying is on the table happens.
2: Well, there's no satisfaction in it. (laughs) I mean, there's no, like...
1: You don't have a lot of uh, I-told-you-so energy?
2: No. I wish wish I'd been wrong (laughs) more than anything. (laughs) Um... No, I don't have a lot of told you so energy, but what I do have, and this is where, ironically, my piece came from, I think, on for the piece that I did write on Friday.
1: Which is called The Necessity of Hope.
2: Right. And here's the thing. That piece and that headline. And in fact, I'm making an argument. For, for hope moving forward, right? But I feel like it can be received on the surface. as like, this was a cheerful piece. It was a way to find good news. No, it was the inverse, okay? So, and it was actually, a, I wouldn't have been able to put this into words as I was writing it that day, but um, it was born out of a fury at that denialism And so the bulk of the piece is, in fact, a feel-bad piece, right? It is about how bad this is and also staving off what I was already beginning to hear, which is, well, this is the bottom. No, no, it is not the bottom. It is not the bottom. And don't start putting on the it-could-be-worse patches. Like, a big motivation of this piece, which I think is framed in this, like, There's still reason to hope, like, is actually the inverse of that, which is let us be crystal clear about what is happening, what is lost, what is violated, the the cruelty, the horror, and the injustice, and that it is only moving toward worse right now. And it's to establish that, to then say, that it is the responsibility to really absorb that and then figure out how to move forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is going to get worse. I don't know exactly how high up in the piece it is, but it's pretty fucking high. Yes. Like, the idea is this is not the bottom. This is going to get much worse. And if you can't engage with the idea that it's going to get much worse, you're not going to be able to ever make it better. Right. Here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about after I read it, because I, I wrote you and asked you to do this right after I read that piece. And the thing that I was thinking about as I read it was, Rebecca is somebody who has known this moment was either coming or very likely to come for a long time. I can hear in your voice as you were just talking all of that frustration and anger and dismay and I don't actually understand how you bridge that gap between that physical reaction and the intellectual one that you need to make on the page. And so I guess if we can, I I just like to spend a little bit of time on the process by which like a piece like that happens. You know, did you have drafts of that as soon as the Alito opinion leaked? Like how do you take all of this history for yourself, all of this intellectual work and all of this emotional work – and respond on Friday as a writer.
2: There's a short version of that, which is just about Friday, and there's a longer version, which is over the past year.
1: Let's do them both. Let's start with the short version.
2: The short version is that that particular piece, I certainly had not pre-written it. I didn't expect to write in response to the decision. I had filed another piece about abortion, Um, that was a reported piece that I'd been working on for a couple of weeks. I'd filed it that morning. And then I was with my colleague who was working on two reported pieces immediately as it had happened and knew she was going to be writing um, in response to the story. And I felt really useless. Um, And I was on the phone with my editor talking through some stuff. And this is within the it is within the hour after the decision came down. And my editor said, Is there anything that you could conceive of writing right now? And I said, I mean, the only thing I could conceive of writing is a column about like hope as a tactical, because, you know, about because I, I, I you know, it may even be that my editor said this is the bottom or something, and I said it's not the bottom. And I, that fury at a failure to reckon with how bad this was going to be and how bad it is was, was a big animating force. And I was like, no, the only thing I want to say is how bad this is. And then also how the fact of its badness makes it incumbent on us to not despair because that's the tactical necessity moving forward. And I just sort of said that. And my editor said, why don't you write it? And I, I said to him, you have to promise me that if I write this piece and it, And it feels at all hokey. You're going to tell me I cannot write something cheerful right now. The piece of, even though it's like about hope, I cannot write something cheerful right now. Mm -hmm. So that was the conversation. And it was probably about 1130. And um, he said, do you think you can do it in the next couple hours? And I said, I will try. And again, there was a lot of begging. If this is bad, please don't run it. Because I can't trust myself right now.
1: Is that a feeling that you have often? That yes, you
2: every time I write,
1: that you can't trust yourself.
2: Not that I can't trust myself, but that it might be bad. I mean, I, I I fear every time I file something that it that it might be bad, and I it's one of the reasons that I so deeply value editors, and I have to trust them to tell me when it's bad. Right, I have to be able to trust that somebody will stop me if I make an error, or am careless, or i am not as clear as as I want and need to be so but this one was particularly fraught because it was so urgent and unplanned and unexpected and I wasn't and it was it felt like such a tightrope of not wanting to be cast as like the white lady being like don't worry things are like to write anything about the necessity of hope in a moment and being very aware of my position with regard to this, like I just didn't, I really didn't want to write a piece that could be interpreted as like, don't worry, be happy, which was the absolute inverse of what I wanted to write, which was like, be very fucking unhappy, angry and terrified and understand that that cannot. And it's perhaps especially directed at, um, you know, sort of more privileged groups of readers who are unused to setback and unused to really reckoning with injustice, you know? Um, and who are and that's something I have a lot of experience with just because of my writing and my audience, you know, and I, I think it's a really crucial message. And I, I think in some to some degree, it is my responsibility to make it really plain to people who, you know, have lived with comparative privilege and insulation through these past 50 years and don't have the muscle memory or practice or um, oral tradition of understanding that progress moves backwards that there is regress and that you have to keep fighting to make it forward, that you can't just sit and, and hope that the institutions, you know, will, will save you. And so anyway, there is this, lo- there is this longer term set of questions about what my role should be with regard to this story. There, there are so many reporters out there. I'm very aware you know, of my position as a generalist in terms of what I cover. So I have been writing about abortion for, you know, I don't know, 15 to 20 years. Um, but it's not the only thing I cover. And there are these great journalists out there who are on the ground at clinics, right? Uh, you know, who have been doing this work, the in-depth policy work, the legal work, right? And it's, it's you know, people who cover especially reproductive health care, people who cover specifically the courts, people, and I'm not a specialist on that level. And so... I am constantly wondering, like, what is my responsibility here? I'm also a person who has a big platform, comparatively, um, at a mainstream publication. And so I'm constantly balancing those questions about, like, what is my best work here? What's my responsibility?
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation. It creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant, and I kind of forgot that I wasn't, like, listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like, very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
3: Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the US designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Tell me the longer version of Leading Up to Friday.
2: The longer version is I wasn't going to write anything about Dobbs. And that I told my bosses that the better part of a year ago. Why? Um... (laughs) Oh, because I'm a neurotic writer, and also because I was tired and mad. And this is so, this is all so, but it's, but it is interesting in retrospect, I guess, from the, you know, in terms of curiosity about how my actual job goes. So there are a couple different levels. One is I have always combined my work as a columnist, either these quick columns I'm kind of describing now, or just like the kind of column you take a week on and you report and you, you know, and then it's a column. Versus my longer projects, which are often very lengthy reported profiles. Those lengthy reported profiles, which I have been working to make better, like that's a skill. I was a terrible profile reporter when I started as a journalist. I was actually just a terrible reporter. And um, it's something I've, it's the thing I have worked and worked and worked to get better at.
1: Can you articulate what that work is? Like what is the work you're doing to become a better profile writer? What does that look like?
2: It, like that's been since I started as a fact checker doing the gossip column at the New York Observer in 2000 right like the the idea is I have to be a better reporter and that means getting better at calling all the people figuring out how to call all the people doing all the reading right which is something that gets lost and I think um, disincentivized in a quicker journalism like you're you're just not reading all the books that are out there you're not being able to see all the work because that requires time and there are all kinds of journalism models right now that that deny most reporters the time to do that kind of work right and Then also a thing that has always frustrated me in political journalism, including my own, when I started doing these longer features was the call to make these things one dimensional or and my whole effort as a writer is to convey how complicated things are. I think complication can be at the heart of good narrative journalism but there are a lot of incentives again in place having to do with the internet having to do with how we communicate having to do with short attention spans or perceived short attention spans that discourage nuance and complication in storytelling and so the thing that i have been most and this has also come with the accumulation of my own seniority within journalism right that i can now say look i want i as a younger person it's much easier when somebody says you're making this too complicated you just have to like Um, you know, either you're bringing in too much history that's not relevant to this election cycle or whatever, (laughs) you know, or you're bringing in all this class, race, and gender stuff that, like, is just going to muddy, it's going to make people confused, and you got to just tell the story. And it's like, well, I don't feel like I can tell the story of this person without bringing in the history and the class, gender, and race stuff, right? But that my ability to insist on that has grown with my seniority, right? So that is also important to note. But I also just think that there are My goal as a writer is to get better and better at telling more clearly, compellingly and persuasively the complicated, contextualized, nuanced stories rather and as opposed to take journalism. And I say that not to offend those in the business of take journalism. I am also in the business of take journalism at the same time. Right. Where and I have trafficked in and profited from my ability to voice my sometimes unnuanced opinion really quickly. But the older I get, the more I am drawn to the longer and more complicated forms of storytelling. Now, those require months of concentration if, you're, if you are lucky, okay? Again, this is like what I leverage my seniority to ask for is like the ability to spend a huge amount of time on a piece. And I have really felt like it was a place where I have been getting better. And there's, you know, over the past few years, it actually started with a piece that I wrote just before the pandemic, which was a profile of Susan Collins. That was one of my favorite pieces I ever worked on. And it was, I was given, I got to do it over three months. And it was, and it was a complicated piece. And I, and she didn't talk to me for it. So it was a write around. And gosh, it was just one of the most rewarding and I thought most useful. I mean, I just thought, I thought that story was good. And I was like, I want to do more of this. And then the pandemic happened and everything sort of got thrown in the air. But over this past year, I have said, and also I'm sick of the sound of my own opinions, right? There is a thing when you have been writing the opinion part of my job for as long as I've been doing it. And I'm often repeating myself, right? I have friends who are like, it's liturgy. You got to That's part of the job. Like you got to say it every week, But but it's not Like, I'm sick of myself. I can't imagine that other people aren't sick of me and what I think.
1: Are you bored?
2: No, I'm not bored. But when you're saying it over and over again and you're losing over and over again, right? It can lead not to boredom, but to a sense of futility. And that's something I'm fighting in myself because this is what I'm saying, right? Like, you got to keep – like, you can't just be like, well, I guess, like, nobody's – like, it just doesn't make a difference, And then there's also the the reality of like I in the more I report on things, the more aware I am of my own inexpertise, right? So I noted before that I'm acutely aware of not being a specialist, for example, on abortion politics or law, and you know I've always found in all my work that the more I learn, the more I doubt my own authority which I think is good for, for a writer. Like, I actually, I don't think that's bad.
1: I feel like it's good for a writer, good for a person. That feels like a very healthy thing to me.
2: <laughs> right. But particularly with this subject, I just was feeling a, a whole bunch of things in the, in the fall. A desire to really work on these longer pieces, a desire to not do so much of the quick journalism, the quick, the opinion pieces Also, I probably was feeling a real anger at having been told for so long that what I was writing about wasn't real and was a form of hysteria and sort of single issue whining and like, you know, vagina politics or whatever. And then it being real and suddenly everybody being like, Rebecca, what are you going to write about abortion? And I was like, fuck you. I'm not writing about abortion. I mean, this is—I'm confessing this ugly element of my my stated decision to my editors, right?
1: Fuck you! I, I've been writing about abortion.
2: Yes, and I will say this as somebody who has written about it a lot. Again, not with the sort of embeddedness of a beat reporter, but who, from my time at Salon, where I went in 2003, has written about it from a lot of angles: the political analysis, the movement history. The personal analysis, I went back and excavated my family's history with abortion. The I, I wrote a long story the first week of the Trump administration about the future of abortion in America that... You know, was about a lot of what I anticipated was going to happen. That must have been a six or seven thousand word story that ran in New York Magazine. Um, I wrote a huge piece when I was at the New Republic in 2015, and and I'm somebody who often gets asked to go on the radio or television. I am never asked to go on television or the radio to talk about abortion. I mean, maybe a couple of times. I can write this stuff, and it's just never. That's never what the appetite was. And suddenly, as we got closer to Dobbs, I was getting these these calls from people to be like, we'd really like to know what you're thinking about Dobbs. And I was like, Dobbs, it's done. It's done, right? There's no, in the other periods where I was writing about this, in part, it was to make clear that this was at risk and this was what was at stake. But here we are. It's a train. I'm not stopping it. And you're not stopping it by finally deciding you want to put me on television to talk about it. You know? And it was that feeling of like now, now you want to talk about it. So that's another probably another element of where my anger was. And so during the oral arguments in December, I told my editor, and he was like, Are you gonna and I said, No, no, nope, I'm not. Nope. Okay, now here's the day after the oral arguments, I was so mad that I wrote a column. Okay. Like <laughs> I it didn't last in that regard, but then I was like, Okay, that's it, no more. But it was that was another column that was and it was really angry at Democrats. Um, And I will tell you that my experience of that just confirmed for me like, no, this is not because I wrote that column. It went up very quickly. And then people wanted me to come on television and the radio to talk about it. And I did because I am ultimately a good soldier. And I did. And I went to places that I knew were going to be smartest about it. But all the comments I got afterwards on Twitter or like to the radio station or to the TV were like, "She told us everything that went wrong, but she didn't tell us how to fix it." (laughs) I was like, "They're
1: not."
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sorry to make an ugly noise into the microphone, but um, that's okay. So then, in the spring, Dobbs was on the horizon, and I said to my editors, "I do not want to do opinion pieces about Dobbs. I want to come at it from a." totally a sideways angle. And that is when I said to them, what I would like to do is write a profile about Dianne Feinstein, which now I want to be clear in no way was I saying that the fall of Roe was Dianne Feinstein's fault. But what I was really curious about was a generation of democratic leadership that had come of age in the same period that a lot of the social and political movements had borne fruit in the mid to late 20th century. And the generation that had come into Democratic Party power in that period officially as the stewards of those victories and who had remained in power as those victories have been reversed and eroded. And so that was a very sideways, and it was not about, like, I'm blaming this person for Roe, but it was a, a person who has always been fascinating to me. And so I did that. I worked on that. On that feinstein piece but happening at that same time i was beginning to talk to people deep in the in the movement right people who were working at clinics people who were in activist movements who were hyper aware of everything that was on the horizon And so at some point in that long reporting Feinstein thing where I wasn't writing about abortion, um, I was actually with somebody in another context who was waiting for a specific state restriction to be signed at that moment, like calling for a waiting period. And this person who was in charge of a bunch of clinics was watching her phone being like the moment that signature goes on paper, this is about a state restriction. I have to cease all all abortion provision. And then we have to recalibrate to accommodate this restriction or the clinics and providers will be in violation. And it was such an intense dynamic. Again, it was for a state restriction. It was, but just the watching of the phone to wait for the minute to make the call and trying to get all the patients in before it was like a little preview of everything that has happened in the past three days. And I was happened to be with this person as this was happening and something in me just lurched inside out. Like, I don't know that this, there's this view available. Now, I, I also, it's not that my work in any way made it available. There have been other people who have been doing this. But at that point, I was just like, wow, I, I, I can't not be writing about this. Um, anyway, that is to say, I didn't plan to write about this stuff in ways that I, maybe I feel some shame about that I had, th- that I said, you know, eight months ago or whatever, I'm not going to write about this. I mean, I I feel shame for having even said that, though there were reasons. And I also, I did not live up to my assertion.
1: There's a lot in that story. There are a lot of different layers and tensions between the kind of work you want to be doing, the kind of writing you have been doing, and the response to it, that element of defeatism, that desire to do longer reported pieces, and hearing you talk about it, I mean, it sounds a little unresolved to me, I would say.
2: Yeah. It's hugely unresolved. Um it is these questions of what what's urgent now versus what is it more important to spend time and investment in and I do want to shift I do want to shift to be a writer who does more on balance more that's just professionally more of the long-form stuff both features and I would like to write another book not too long from now um but how do I balance that against a call, both my own temper that might lead me to be like, i got to say this thing right now. And to some degree, an appetite and a sense of responsibility. I don't know how to make that balance. It's, it's, it's the tension that animates all my professional choices.
1: It's going to get worse.
2: So much worse.
1: And, you know, I won't ask you how you're going to navigate that tension when it gets worse. Cause I don't think that's a totally answerable question, but it does seem to me that it is going to get worse and, and that tension might as well.
2: It will. And there's also, I just want to also note that I am, I'm aware of the space I take up too. right. That I have a big platform and that I am a middle-class, cis married, straight white woman. Right. Which is not, I, you know, And that's I don't mean that as like performative self-flagellation, but I'm also very aware that like our industry has has made space for people like me in a way that it has not made space for and that I've taken advantage of that space and and filled it in a way that it hasn't for a lot of other incredibly talented writers who have a lot of urgent things to say in this period And so I'm also balancing that awareness and a real desire to sort of, again, like there's a, there's a way to combine a sort of, I don't want to be, I'm not, this is again, not self-flagellation. This is careerist on my part to say that I want to be writing, you know, longer pieces or whatever, but also a little bit like maybe get out of the way as the person who's blaring these, these um, columns every week.
1: Do you think that'll be hard to do?
2: To get out of the way? well apparently because i keep writing them but and i'm and i'm questioning that myself but also i will also say that i'm aware that a lot of my readership is from that same is like a white middle class readership that doesn't get a lot of complex race gender class analysis in a daily media diet of mainstream media and so and then i'm also balancing that like does it matter that i am like when I think about that and the space that I take up and the I'm also know that my readership is a population that is has a lot of resources and that is not likely to get a lot of this stuff. You know, I don't know. These are these are the these are things that are weigh on me and that are unanswerable and I and again that I, you know, I'm I'm making sort of choices as I go. And I don't know how, how honorable they are as far as me. On the other hand, like this is all very, you know, self-centered who cares about me and like my choices in, (laughs) in this regard. Uh, it's really not that important, but just when it comes to how I'm choosing like my own journalistic choices, these are all factors. When, when we talk about that tension that I'm having, which is my personal tension about how to shape my own career, the tension about what my responsibility is as far as repeating myself and getting over my frustration at like having said the same thing for 20 years and, and had no one let listen, like get over it, Rebecca, that's your job is to keep saying it. I would just wanted to add that there's also this tension internally about like, at what moment do I try to shrink the space that I take up to make room for other people? And also do I trust our industry enough to think that if I shrink the space I take up, that there's going to be space made for better people. These are all questions, unanswerable questions.
1: Well, I know you just said that um, you're not sure who would care about this, but as soon as I read that column on Friday, I cared very much. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and thinking out loud with me about all of these unanswerable
2: questions thank you so much for asking me
1: thanks for listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff seth kelly edited this episode and he did it very quickly thank you seth thanks to Noel Matier who did the show notes thanks to our friends at Vox with whom we make the show and thanks so much to Rebecca Traster for taking some time we'll see you next week